We are fortunate to have Dr. Jeffrey Siegel as our next speaker. Dr. Siegel is one of our country's leading authorities on medical malpractice and remedies available through counterclaims. Dr. Siegel graduated from the University of Texas and the Baylor College of Medicine, earning Phi Beta Kappa and AOA honors. He is a board-certified neurosurgeon who completed his residency at the Baylor College of Medicine and was a spinal surgery fellow at the University of South Florida School of Medicine. He is a member of AAPS. He will tell us about his company, Medical Justice, which helps physicians in 47 states fight back against the frivolous malpractice cases. Let's welcome Dr. Jeffrey Siegel. Anyway, thanks. I think before I get started, it would probably be useful to get a show of hands to see if anyone in this room has either been the victim of a frivolous suit or if you know someone who's been a victim of a frivolous suit. Now, don't be shy. Raise your hands. I see. There we go. Pretty good show of hands. Well, I bring good news. I think there are mechanisms where we can use existing infrastructure to keep yourself from being sued for a frivolous reason. Now, by way of background, I am a neurosurgeon and I practiced for 10 years. In fact, I practiced in Indiana, which had a very uh, pleasant environment for physicians as it relates to a tort environment. What do I mean by that? Well, in the 1970s, uh, there was a crisis, and doctors were leaving the Rust Belt to go to the East and West Coast, deciding that Indiana was just not a good place to practice medicine. So the then governor was also a physician, said this needed to be fixed, and indeed he implemented substantive tort reform pretty rapidly, and it became a pretty good place for a physician to practice. Now, I practiced there until 2000, at which point I moved to, uh, to North Carolina. Um, so by and large, my background is such that I really wasn't exposed directly to the, to the tort issues. I will tell you that after I left Indiana, Indiana, everything went to hell in a handbasket because you can see that Indiana has the number one ranking for paid claims per thousand physicians. So it was pretty clear, and I think you'll agree with me, that I was the sole buffer keeping the environment in the proper place in Indiana. Okay, you may not give me that. Okay. So what does the tort system try to do, particularly as it relates to medical malpractice? Well, it has two goals, and I would consider them to be lofty goals. Uh, number one is that the goal is to deter negligent acts, that is to keep physicians from practicing in a way that exposes patients to harm. And then number two, to the extent that they create harm, to go ahead and make the patient whole, that is to give the patient uh, fair and equal restitution. Now, I think everyone will agree with me that these goals are met. Would you not? Okay, I wanted to make sure that everyone in here had taken their lipoic acid and acetylcarnitine for their cognitive function. Stay, stay with me on this now. All right, so we can all agree that frivolous cases exist. This is one of many that come out of uh, my sizable file cabinet, and, and this is a true case. It relates to a urologist who performed a vasectomy, um, he did the procedure the way it was always done and he explained to the patient in advance that um, X percent of the time the vas deferens can recanalize and that uh, could create a problem down the road, but most of the time it's not a problem. And indeed, after the procedure, he performed a sperm count and did it again, I think, a month later. 
and it looked like everything was a-okay. Now, it turned out sometime later, I think it was a year later, the patient's wife became pregnant. Now, the first thing that we would think about would be that the doctor clearly created negligence, right? No. And I think we can all imagine an alternative scenario that, that would explain this particular end result. It doesn't boggle the mind. But the first knee-jerk impulse was to sue the doctor, and he got a chance to experience the tort system for approximately two years, at which point the wife, yes, it was the wife, fessed up as to uh, maybe, maybe she was uh, at least 50% negligent. <laughs> Next slide. All right, so, you know, when a, when a doctor gets sued um, and a judgment occurs or a settlement occurs, even for a dollar, their name gets reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. And in point of fact, the data bank was probably started with lofty uh, intentions and worthy, worthy intentions. Um, it was designed to keep physicians from traveling from one state to another, bad doctors from going one state to another and setting up shop again. And so the thinking is that if your name is in the National Practitioner Data Bank, you must be a bad doctor. Well, let's look at the statistics. The data bank launched in 1990, so we have 14 years of statistics. Okay, there are, it turns out there are 200,000 entries for physicians in the data bank, most of whom have been reported only one time. So that means one out of three physicians in this country have their name in the data bank. And clearly there are doctors who were sued or um, uh, settled a case well before 1990. And of course, there are very clever ways to settle a case and avoid having your name placed in the data bank with a corporate exception. And if we have time, I can certainly explain all of these little tricks and loopholes. But I can tell you that 200,000 people haven't figured it out. So we have a lot of people in the data bank. And I would posit that maybe, maybe these aren't all bad doctors. So what is medical justice? Well, it's an entity that I put together um, several years ago designed to do a couple of things. It was designed to keep physicians from being sued for frivolous reasons by holding proponents of these suits accountable in a number of different venues. My goal was to use existing infrastructure with law as it exists uh, today uh, to be able to give physicians remedies. And these remedies can be found in a number of different areas, including medical professional societies, uh, occasionally licensing boards, and in court. So what do we do? The first thing we do is what we don't do. So when I launched this business, I thought that if someone sues you inappropriately, you just sue them back. And there must be some legal theory. It just shows you how naive I was when I started this venture. Um, because it turns out there is a legal theory uh, that you could readily use called malicious prosecution. It means that someone came after you and they did it with malice. And we've had discussions earlier today as to what malice means. And in the legal world, it has a very, very strict, uh, or at least a very formal definition. Um, but physicians really can't use uh, malicious prosecution to go after a plaintiff or his attorney in a medical malpractice case for a variety of reasons, one of which is that more often than not, in fact, almost all the time, there will be an expert witness who has come on board explaining to the attorney that indeed there is a case. So the attorney will be able to make a straight-faced argument saying, hey, look, I'm an attorney. I was a zealous advocate for my client. I did the right thing. I got a medical expert, one of your colleagues, who said that you screwed up. 
So yes, this, there, there may not have been any merit to the case, but I did everything I was supposed to do. And in point of fact, they would be right, that we would be hard-pressed to use the tort of malicious prosecution to fight back. So what do we do? We actually fall back on contract law. We have the patient sign a contract in advance when they see the physician uh, to do two things. One, they will not sue the doctor for a frivolous reason. Not any reason, just a frivolous reason. And then number two, and I think much more importantly, um, to the extent that, um, that experts are used, they will use um, experts who are uh, members of the same specialty and who follow the code of ethics uh, of that doctor's specialty society. So more on that uh, in a few minutes. So we talked about expert witness, at least I alluded to it, and they, those are the individuals who make or break a case. An expert is designed to explain to the jury how the standard of care was violated. And almost always you have to have an expert uh, to prosecute a case going forward. Without an expert, there really is no case. Now, what we have seen uh, is the, uh, the building of renta experts. That is, you can press Google, find uh, rent an expert, and we, we liken that to something that is called witnesses having other rational explanations. And I want you to put the words together for me. Witnesses having other rational explanations describes um, some of the behavior of these individuals. I'll give you a couple more seconds for, for the other side of the bell curve, okay? More carnitine. Okay. So in any event, th these are people that will say A in North Carolina, fly to California, say not A. They don't really care. The only thing they care about is the fact that they're getting paid. So to the extent they're getting a paycheck, they are um, they're guns for hire. I think more interesting to us are what we call the well-intentioned dabbler. These are experts who don't understand their proper role. The role of the expert is to be an advocate for the truth, okay? Not an advocate for the plaintiff or the defendant. Uh, that's the proper role of the attorney, but to be an advocate for the truth. And I think well-intentioned physicians trying to do everything for their patient will also see the plaintiff as potentially their, uh, their patient. So they screw up their role, and accordingly, this creates a great deal of anxiety for, for uh, the defendant physician. So what have professional societies done? Well, my professional society, the American Association of Neurolog Neurological Surgeons, had rules on their books, the Code of Ethics, which stated what is and what is not appropriate uh, testimony for a neurosurgical witness. And it's actually pretty reasonable. It's been on the books since the early 1980s. But by and large, no one really wanted to enforce these rules. Why not? Well, they, of course, were afraid that they would be sued for disciplining a member of the organization. Um, fast forward to the mid-90s, and uh, there was a lawsuit uh, where a neurosurgeon named Dr. Austin testified. He testified about the standard of care in this case related to a cervical disc removal. And in that case, he said that if you get hoarseness after removal of a, of a disc, that defines negligence. Well, I can tell you as a neurosurgeon, um, it is a risk of the procedure. We can't even see the nerve. So if it happens, it really is bad luck. And it's unrelated to anything the neurosurgeon did or did not do. So the defendant won the case. He then went to our professional society and said, what are you going to do about this Dr. Austin? And he said, well... Uh, let's review the testimony. And indeed, they reviewed it and they suspended him. Well, Dr. Austin then sued, stating that this was a, a blot on his, uh, 
his resume, that he had a, a day job, but more importantly, he had a very um, bustling career as a plaintiff's expert, and it would be much harder to be hired noting that he had been disciplined by this professional society. So it turns out that um, this was then kicked up to an appellate court, and Judge Posner, a very famous uh, appellate judge, said not only does the AANS, this professional society, have the right to discipline their own member, indeed they have a duty to do so, who better than a collection of neurosurgeons to understand what, what is and what is not a neurosurgical, uh, appropriate neurosurgical testimony. I do want to contrast this to what's different between this type of uh, review versus what we've talked about earlier as it relates to in-hospital peer, sham peer review related to, for the most part, economic credentialing. This is really a very uh, different beast. And then finally, Austin uh, kicked this up, uh, made an attempt to get this to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they said, we don't want to hear it. So this is a very influential case, primarily because many of our national professional societies are located in the same neighborhood, namely in Chicago. So we talked about the patient contract that they should sign, and indeed, uh, patients are only too happy to sign this. We actually thought early on there may be some pushback, but what we've learned is that most patients view themselves as being reasonable and rational. And I can tell you right now that if a patient will ref uh, refuses to sign a contract stating that they will, they, they're uncomfortable signing a contract stating they won't sue you for a frivolous reason, you may think of that as a red flag. Because now when times are happy, they're uncomfortable. Imagine how pleasant they will be when, uh, when things don't go exactly 100% right. So our goals are threefold. One is to keep the physician from being sued in the first place. Number two, to try and get them dropped sooner rather than later, uh, assuming that they're sued. And number three, to the extent that we fail and the case goes to court, to give them a collection of remedies to at least give them a sense of justice. So here's, that was the theory. This is the reality because we've been in business now for approximately four years and have a pretty healthy track record. So in Florida, the average doctor is sued at a rate of 10 to 15% every year. Um, that's all Florida. If you go down to Dade or Broward County, you'll find that number is even higher. If you go into those counties, you, you cannot find a neurosurgeon who has never been sued. They've all been sued most, you know, three, four, five, some, some as many as 10 or 12 times. Um, for our physicians in Florida, the suit rate is under 2% per doctor per year. So we've been able to, at least by using contract, to influence the filing of these suits up front. And I think we've been quite successful in keeping uh, frivolous suits from entering the court system in a judicial hellhole like Florida. Yeah. There we go. Now, there are many other states who believe that they should be called uh, judicial hellholes or judicial latrines, <laughs> Ohio being yet another one. So not, not to... Um, not to um, impugn the reputation of Ohio in general, but suffice it to say, there clearly are portions of Ohio, in particular the northeast portion, where litigation is the order of the day, in particular Cuyahoga County. But in Ohio, they have something called the 180-day letter, which says, we're thinking of suing you, okay? We haven't sued you now, but we have another half a year, and likely we will sue you then. And historically, that's exactly what happened. Most of these cases turned into bona fide lawsuits, and they may, they may have gotten dropped later, but you know, the doctor would have to take the time to defend themselves. So what do we do? Well, we respond early, stating that Dr. John Doe is a member of our organization, and he has $100,000 at his disposal to file countersuits and counterclaims against any and every proponent of a frivolous suit. What have we seen? We've seen that most of these 180-day letters evaporate. That is, 
80% turn into nothing, only 20% turn into a suit. So the before picture is that almost everything became a lawsuit, the after picture is a very few turn into a bona fide lawsuit. This is a real case. This, per this person came to us, a general surgeon, after he'd been sued, and it turns out that it was related to a laparoscopic cholecystectomy that he had performed. And, I, and I'm not a general surgeon, and I'm pretty much parroting how he described the procedure. But as he was pulling out the gallbladder, a tiny piece of gallstone fell into the peritoneal cavity. And apparently the way what you try to do is fish it out with a laparoscope. And if you can't, you're left with a fork in the road. Either you uh, fillet the patient open and try to take it out with an open procedure, or you sit back and watch it, the risk, of course, being an infection. So this patient weighed approximately 350 pounds, and the doctor was less than enthused in terms of uh, choice A. So he opted to watch the patient, and he watched the patient for quite a while. Now, interestingly enough, he was sued, and the expert in this particular case said, you mark my words, and at, this testimony came out seven years after the, um, the surgery. He said, you mark my words, there will be an infection. Not there might be, but there will be an infection. So he came on board with medical justice. We sent notification to the opposite side of his coverage, and unfortunately, the case was not dropped, uh, and it went to court two years later. And it was kind of interesting because now that the witness was on the stand, he said, I've got to tell you something. Now that nine years uh, has gone by, I think the likelihood of there being an infection is quite low. No negligence. Case over. So we thought this was a win. We were pretty happy, and we were so excited about this, we thought that we would publish this in a journal. And it would look something like this. <laughs> now, we, we, we've all read this. There we go. We've all read the surgery text, I think it's the yellow Sabbathson text, which talks about the near certain infection from year zero to seven. Then, of course, the, the significant decrement in rate of infection between seven to nine with our N equal one and the single variable, the medical justice offense. Let's hear the wolf pack now, okay? Okay, <laughs> good. Um, this is an interesting case. There was a medical director for a managed care organization in Connecticut, and by day he would deny um, coverage for various procedures, as that was his level, that was his core competence. Um, and at night, interestingly enough, this guy would, would, um, would serve as a plaintiff's expert witness, not once, twice. By his own admission, this guy had served as an expert in 200 cases against Connecticut physicians. He was an ER doctor by training and not practiced in five years, and um, he listed on his website core competence in neurosurgery, OB-GYN, infectious disease. The list goes on and on, total of 48 different specialties. That was one bright guy. <laughs> so in any event, we thought that there was a, a little bit of a conflict of interest here. You know, you're reviewing confidential charts, and somehow magically they end up in a plaintiff's uh, attorney's office, and he's the expert. Uh, so we started knocking on the door saying, hey, look, you know, can you just come up with some type of prospective policy statement where you, know, you don't have this conflict of interest? And we couldn't get anyone's attention. And we knocked and we knocked, couldn't get the attention. So then we thought, we thought well, maybe let's go to the attorney general and see what they have to say. So they went knocking on the door and they got a response. It turns out that um, this medical director has only one job now and it's not as a medical director. 
So they were able to get his attention, basically stating that there is indeed a conflict of interest. If you, if you look at confidential information, you can't take this confidential information and then profit from it by virtue of being a plaintiff's expert in a medical malpractice case. And I think you, you can agree on that. Can you not? Okay. Not yet. So we, we like to call these things emerging issues, things to worry about. Just when we think we've heard it all, there's yet something else. So in this case, it was a workers' comp um, system, traveler's insurance. The patient was treated by a neurologist for seizures, uh, gave, gave him Dilantin. I don't think he even saw the guy again. And then unfortunately, he goes out drinking and driving. And they say he may have had a seizure, turns the car over, and um, he becomes a quadriplegic. And we can all agree this is a horrible outcome. Um, and so Traveler says they're not going to pay this guy's disability insurance. So he fights that for two years, and they say, we're going to pay you, but we need you to do one thing for us. You need to um, help us make a case and sue your neurologist. Sue him for not turning you into um, an alcohol rehab program or whatnot. And the guy says, you're going to pay me my money? And he said, yeah. I said, write me the check. And so um, they wrote the check. They couldn't find this guy. I don't know where a quadriplegic goes, but, but they couldn't find them. That, that didn't deter travelers. They're still going out there trying to make a case. And they, they went to a um, number of experts. They couldn't find an expert. They went to a number of attorneys. Finally, they found an attorney, and they sued this neurologist. They got thrown out. The point I'm trying to make is that travelers went to the end of the universe to try and make themselves whole. From, and there was, this doctor should have never been brought into this process. I want to talk about something that is also an emerging issue because I, I've heard uh, the notion here about cash pay, and I, I'm a believer in it. I think it's a very wise idea. There we go. Let's hear the wolf pack one more time. There we go. Um, we th it turns out that plastic and cosmetic surgeons are our second largest constituency, so we are aware of some of the issues that cash pay physicians face. They're a little bit different than we faced as neurosurgeons, and one of the issues is that they want their money back. That is, they don't, at least for plastic surgery, they don't like the outcome, and they believe that this is like a, a toaster. You go to Walmart, and you get your, your money back. And our argument has always been, we'd be delighted to give you your money back for the facelift you just got. Just give me back your face, okay? So I bring it up only because this is an emerging issue. You should be aware of it. We've been very proactive in diplomatically tiptoeing and getting people to understand that what, you, what, what they purchase from you is your time, and you can't get your time back. This is not a commodity. So we've got a lot of core competence in dealing with this issue also. We're currently, we, we have about 1,500 physicians on board. Most have found this after they've been sued, uh, just like the way uh, they find uh, Andy after they found uh, themselves on the wrong side of the law. Um, and ask for his help. And I've seen the work that he does in the amicus briefs, and they're absolutely brilliant. Um, more wolf pack here? Okay. okay. We, we've had a number of plan members drop from lawsuits. Um, our doctors don't get sued as frequently. And finally, I think we've been successful in leveling the playing field and giving physicians a sense of justice. Uh, we add one more thing called the peer program. The peer program is a set of a collection of volunteer defense experts. Normally, uh, both, def both experts for plaintiff and defense are paid handsomely. The attorneys bring that fact out, and the jury just discounts it on both sides. We have a collection of experts who will participate at no charge, 
and they can honestly state on the witness stand, no, I'm not getting paid a penny for this testimony. This has a profound impact on the jury, and we think it, it tilts the balance uh, back, to, uh, back to the physician where we believe it often um, should be. All right, time is short. Uh, just to, sum, uh, to summarize, our goals are modest. One, to keep physicians from being sued for frivolous reasons in the first place. Number two, to the extent that they are sued, to get them dropped from a case sooner rather than later. Our timetable is in a matter of weeks, not according to the, uh, the attorney's timetable, which would be a matter of months to years. And finally, to give physicians viable remedies, namely a sense of justice. Now, I'll close by just giving you some comments as to what the bell curve of our members uh, state. On the one hand, we have an individual who says, I hope your service continues to grow so that we all might begin to practice compassionate rather than defensive medicine. And someone who's a little bit angrier said, attorneys and plaintiffs act as though they are shooting fish in a barrel. Now the fish are armed. Thank you. (laughs) 